This morning's text is 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousals, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. And in all this they are surprised that you do not run with them in the same excess of dissipation, and they malign you. But they shall give account to him who is already to judge the living and the dead. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. There are many reasons in the scriptures to believe that the Great Commission is not going to be completed apart from suffering. One of the ones that hit me most recently as I was thinking about it is when Jesus said in Matthew 24, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. In that very context, he said, and you will be hated by all the nations. Which I take to mean, when you put those two together, that everywhere we push back the darkness in taking the good news of the forgiveness of sins and the hope of eternal life and reconciliation with God, some people will embrace it with unutterable joy and others will resist it with anger and even persecution and hatred. Everywhere the gospel goes, it will divide into those two kinds of responses. And therefore, if we are committed to pressing back the darkness and penetrating those unreached peoples, there will be suffering. A second reason I believe that it won't be done without suffering is because Jesus or Paul called evangelism. You could broaden it out to really all kinds of gospel ministries and and world evangelization Evangelism he defined as filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, which I take to mean that the afflictions which Christ endured to purchase our redemption, God means for those afflictions to be imitated and demonstrated in the propagation of that redemption. He purchased it with afflictions. We are to propagate it with afflictions. Third reason, I believe that the Great Commission will not be completed without suffering. Jesus said at the end of his life to those who are about to do this evangelism, as the Father has sent me, so send I you. Now, if you had heard that, as the Father sent me, so send I you, and you knew some of the things involved in his sending, you would tremble. For example, he had said before, uh, if they call the master of the house Beelzebul, devil, how much more will they malign those of 
his household. So in order to be sent like Jesus is sent means to accept that kind of reproach. Here's a fourth reason. I believe that the Great Commission will not be completed without suffering. Paul wrote to Timothy, who was left there in in Ephesus to continue church planting all through Asia. And he said, do not be ashamed, but share in suffering for the gospel in the power of God. Take your share of suffering as a good soldier of Christ. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. That phrase struck me in chapter 4, verse 5. Do the work of an evangelist. Endure suffering. As though if you're faithful in the one, you will experience the other. Those are four reasons. There are many, many more that apart from suffering of God's people, the Great Commission will not be completed. I personally want very much to be involved in the completion of the Great Commission. (laughs) I want to be involved. I want my life to count so much in this great enterprise, and I believe you do too. All of you, most of you certainly, will not be called to be missionaries in the sense that you cross cultures to take the gospel to another people group. But we are engaged as a people. And those who are engaged in what Paul called the turning of people from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, those people are going to be resisted by Satan. And those people are going to meet tribulation and suffering according to these promises. Therefore, First Peter has risen in my own feeling and thinking in these days to a very high place because the point of First Peter, as you've been picking up over the weeks, I hope, the point of the book of First Peter is to strengthen us to choose suffering instead of silence. Very often, that's the choice that is put before us. Will we be silent or will we suffer? The point of First Peter is to help us have the strength, whatever it takes, and it has many things to strengthen us with today, the strength to choose suffering over sin. Many times that's the choice we face. Will we press on in a course of sinning with those we've sinned with for a long time, or will we break it off and experience the reproach that comes in suffering? So there are many levels at which this applies to the Christian life. Now, the main point of this text today is real clear. You can see it in verse 1. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same purpose. Or another translation would say the same thought. A thought is armor. A purpose is armor. Arm yourselves with a thought, with a purpose. What purpose? The purpose to suffer like Christ suffered. So this morning, the main point of the text is, and everything else is subordinate and relates to this. Arm yourself with a certain thought, a certain mindset, a certain purpose. Get a purpose in your head. Get fixed the purpose to choose suffering over sin, if God wills. 
as it says back in chapter 3, verse 17. It is better, if God wills, to suffer for doing what is right rather than doing what is wrong. Arm yourself with the purpose to choose suffering over silence if God brings it to that point where that's the choice you should make. This morning's main point is fix an armor in your mind that is the purpose or the thought of doing what Christ did. Now, this text is designed to help you put on that armor, keep it on, and keep it clad. And there are five, I'm going to call them five pieces to the armor. They're not spelled out that way, but I think if you see what I see here as the main point with all the subordinate points, you'll see that they're all part of the armor. So let's do five pieces briefly. Number one. The first encouragement and help in putting on this armor to suffer with Christ is simply, from verse 1, Christ has suffered. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, there's the first argument, the first basis, the first encouragement. Since Christ has suffered in the flesh, you do it now. You arm yourselves with the same purpose. That's what we talked about at the Lord's table here. So I don't want to... I don't want to spend any more time on this, except to quote Richard Vermbrandt. Many of you know who that is. He was a Romanian pastor who spent 14 years of his adult life and ministry in jail. I think about eight of it in, in solitude. And he wrote a little book when he got out. He wrote a lot of books, but one of them is called 100 Sermons from Prison. He has a phenomenal memory. He, he created about 300 sermons that he memorized while he was in prison, he said, and then he began to write them when he got out. In this one, he said, I have accepted this proposal. Christians are meant to have the same vocation as their king, that of cross bearers. It is this conscience of a high calling and a partnership with Jesus which brings gladness in tribulations which makes Christians enter prisons for their faith with the joy of a bridegroom entering the bridal room. Now, I don't think I would have any right to write that. But since he went through 14 years of imprisonment and he writes it, I think for his sake, I can say it is possible. It is possible to walk into a prison with the joy of a bridegroom entering the bridal room, even though his wife was in another prison, not knowing what would come of her and his children with relatives he hoped. The fact that Jesus, the creator of the universe, the sustainer of all things, the redeemer of the world, the absolutely innocent one, Suffered is the first piece in the armor for putting on this thought. How shall we, his people, not then follow him and take up our cross and join him on the Calvary road? And if it's God's will that we pay for some word of witness or some breaking off of sin or, or some challenge in missions, we gladly pay. As it says way back in chapter 1, we rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory coming right after the description of our sufferings in verses 6 and 7. That's piece number 1. Here's piece number 2. When we suffer, we make a clean break with sin. 
Verse one at the end there, arm yourselves also with this purpose, with the same purpose to suffer. Why? Because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, I'm not totally sure uh, of what that means, but let me tell you what I think it means for you to consider and pray over and see if the Lord and your own study doesn't confirm this. I don't think he means that you become perfect when you suffer, or I don't think he means that when you're converted and you spiritually die with Christ, there's no more sinning. It seems to me like in the context here, the gist is simply, if you love God so much and trust him so much to take care of you, that you will embrace the price, the cost of suffering for some act of righteousness, you have obviously made a break with sinning. If sinning is easy or, let's scrap that, if righteousness, if living a righteous life is all easy, if it's all comfort, there might arise in your heart the, the sense, you know, maybe I really love the comfort and maybe if it costs something, I would find I'm not real. Whereas this text says, when you have suffered, if you arm yourself with this thought, to suffer like Jesus, to pay whatever the price righteousness costs, then when that happens, you know you've ceased in the sense that a decisive break has happened. The bondage of sin on your life has been broken. And there's this sense inside, yes, I love God. Yes, I embrace righteousness. Yes, I'm willing to pay the cost. And yes, I'm not in bondage anymore to sin. I have ceased from sinning, not in a perfectionistic sense that you never stumble again, but that there's been that decisive breaking with the bondage that held you so long that made you hedge back from the suffering or the cost that it would it would take to follow Jesus. The break with sinning is described in verse two. Look at it. So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh. That just means while you're here on earth, the rest of the time in the body, in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. In other words, if you if you trust God enough that you will renounce the fleeting pleasures of sin, as they're described in Hebrews 11:26, renounce the fleeting pleasures of sin and embrace the will of God as your treasure then you have broken it off. Something's happened in your life and there's been a break. I think that's the gist of this second piece of the armor. Namely, when we suffer, if you choose suffering, if you resolutely say, I'm with you, Jesus. Then there's a breaking that comes of the power of sin in your life. Here's number three in the armor. Any amount of past sinning is enough. Any amount of past sinning is enough. Look at verse 3. For the time already past is sufficient. Enough 
for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousals, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. Now, this is, a, this is an amazing sentence to me. I was just, I was sitting, how can I make this sentence sound profound? And it is so straightforward and simple. It says, if you have spent, suppose you're an eight-year-old. Most of them are in Sunday school right now, but suppose you're an eight-year-old. And God opens your heart to recognize your sinfulness in the gospel. Well, you, you haven't got a lot of years of sinning to repent of. And you probably haven't done a lot of big, horrible things. And the word to an eight-year-old is, that's enough. That's enough sinning. You can stop now. You can break it off. You can join Jesus on the Calvary Road and begin to live a life of righteousness. That's enough. And suppose you're here, and this is more likely the case, and you're... 40, 50, 60, 70, and you spent a lot of time sinning, a lot of years sinning, doing all kinds of things that are in this text. Sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousals, drinking parties, abominable idolatries. The word to you is, that's enough time. Right now, looking back over the past, that's sufficient. That's just sufficient. So you can stop now. That's enough. You know, there are a lot of people. I, I, was, I was just pondering, why did he say this? I mean, that is really obvious. And I think it's, I have heard a lot of people say, I'll, I'll get right with God later. I'm not done sinning. I've got some more sinning I want to do. It's fun. I've got a lot of friends who are sinners. With me. And we have a good time. Sinning. And I don't want to make the break yet. I do want to make the break. Oh, I'm scared of hell. Believe me. I do want to make the break someday. But not yet. It isn't enough. And the word to you, if you're in that category, is it's enough. And I really believe. I was praying this morning. I just said, Lord, would it be at this point in the sermon... That I said, just kind of stop and, and look people in the eye and say, the Spirit really does want this to be a decisive moment in your life. And I don't know who you are and what you're struggling with. But I know that in a room like this, with this many people, that there are people who are living in sin. You are doing sin day in and day out and you know it. You know it. You know what you're doing. You're choosing it. You get up in the morning. And you're going to do it. You go to bed at night, you know you've done it. Your conscience feels bad, but you go on doing it. The Lord's word to you right now from this simple text is, it's enough. And right now, God wants you, as you listen to me, and it's not just me talking now. God wants you to resolve by the power of the Holy Spirit to stop. To stop. So that when you walk out of this room, you walk out a free woman or a free man. The time past is enough for sinning. Break it off. Choose whatever the cost. Whatever the cost. Now, what, what might the cost be? That's described here in verse 4. In all this, they are surprised... That you do not run with them into the same excess of dissipation and they malign you. Oh, now we're talking about Monday morning now. If what happens that I'm calling to happen, 
There's some people that have been sinning with you. They know what you do. You know what they do. And if God is speaking to you now and you say, all right, God spoke to me Sunday morning. You got to face those people tomorrow or maybe it's Tuesday night. Thursday night. And you got to face them because you don't show they're going to call you. And then what are you going to say? Well, Sunday morning, I went to church and and the pastor was preaching about sinning. And I really felt God spoke to me that what we've been doing is wrong and it's destructive and it's going nowhere and it's an offense to him. And uh, he told me I should stop and I'm going to stop. And you know what's going to happen? Verse four is going to happen. In all this, they're surprised now that you don't run with them into the same excess of dissipation. And they malign you. Big word. Slander you. Make fun of you. They twist it all around. You can try to tell them how good it is, how right it is, how how God really did speak to you. And you can count on it. They're not going to say, I really respect that. I mean, we always testify that that's the way it happens. I really respect you Christians for standing up to your convictions. It doesn't always happen that way. They say, you've got to be kidding. You are absolutely out of your mind. If you think living like that is better than what we've been doing, come on. And they will find ways to twist it and make you look the fool. That's the price. You will look the fool. That's what happens here in verse 4. Okay, that's piece of armor number 3. It's enough. You don't need to do it anymore. It's over. God can handle the past. In fact, he'll handle the stumblings of the future. But it's up to you right now to respond to him by saying, yes, I break it off. Now, here's piece number four. This will be a help with the maligners because Peter, he's smart and he's been through this. He knows what it's like. He's been maligned and he circulates among all kinds of people who are always giving him trouble. Here's the, the fourth piece in the armor. Your adversaries, these maligners, will be brought to justice so that you don't need to fret about that. Verse five. They shall give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Now, why does he say that? Why does he point out that the people who are going to malign you when you break off sinning are going to be brought to justice? Why does he say that? The reason he says it is because inside of us, there is this tremendous and it is largely okay, righteous feeling that when people do wrong, they ought to pay. Whether it's wrong done to me or wrong done to my children or wrong done to my spouse or wrong done to my city or wrong done to my government or wrong done to the Rwandans or wrong done to the Somalis or wrong done to the Bosnians. They ought to pay if they're doing that kind of stuff. Now, that's not all bad to feel that, but it can, can be bad, real bad, if you don't say God will handle that. God is ready. He's ready to judge the living and the dead. You don't need to. Now, let me qualify this because I know it, 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 we live in a real world where there are at least Four, that I could think of four relationships in which humans ought to call other humans to account when they have done wrong. One, if you're a parent 
and you've got disobedient children, you don't say, well, God, you'll handle that. You spank them whenever you want to, and you correct them whenever you want. God put some authority into the hands of parents to correct and discipline disobedient children. Two, if you're a policeman and there are lawless citizens, you are endowed by your creator, according to Romans 13, with a sword by which you call speeders and robbers and murderers to account. Three, if you're an employer and you have employees who work for you and they are slacking off, you may call them to account. If they will not work, let them not eat, the Bible says. And fourthly, if you're an elder in this church, in church discipline, we call people to an account, if necessary, publicly. So there are at least those four, maybe there's some more that I've missed. Relationships that God has ordained that some of his judging right is shared, not all of it by any means and not the final, but some of it. But but this text is not talking about that. This text is talking about the ordinary daily difficulties that we get into with people who wrong us and say mean things about us. And we're not supposed to reach and grab for some official right that we have and get back at them. This text is saying, keep in mind as a piece of your armor. To help you suffer wrong, silently, quietly, lovingly. Keep in mind, God's the judge. God's the judge. He doesn't miss anything. This text also warns one other thing. Don't fall into the trap of thinking, I was wrong ten years ago. So deeply wrong by my spouse. Or my children were abused or I was fired or I was given uh, an awful poison or whatever. And this person who did that never repented. And in fact, their life has gone like a breeze. And now they're old and they're going to die rich and full of years with no consequence at all. Don't let that thought fill your mind because the text says he is ready to judge the living and the dead. Which means if no judgment ever befell the sinner in this life, they will face the judge on the other side. There is no need for you to run to their deathbed and say, you pay. Because you can leave it all in God's hands. He is the one who judges justly. And Jesus on the cross, you remember chapter 2, verse 23, handed over to him who judges justly and spoke words to the thief. Today you'll be with me in paradise. And spoke words to the soldiers and the slanderers. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's what you can do and leave justice with God. Final point, final piece in the armor. Those who embrace the gospel will triumph over death. Now, verse 6 is difficult, and the interpretations differ according to different commentaries. I don't have the last word here. I have pretty strong conviction about what I think it means. Let me commend it to you again for your prayer and study. I think this verse 6 is addressed to us to encourage us that Christians who have died heard the gospel before they died so that when they died, they would live again. That's what I think the point of the verse is. 
Let's read it again, see if you see that. For the gospel has for this purpose, and that's referring back, I think, to the judgment. Because there's going to be a judgment of the living and the dead, the gospel needs to be preached so that people can be rescued from judgment and have no condemnation come upon them in faith. For the gospel for this purpose has been preached even to those who are dead. Now, that could either mean preached to dead people or preached to people who are now dead. That's the way I'm taking it. Same problem we had last week, by the way. If you have an NIV, it sticks in the word now just to give their interpretation, which I think is a correct one. Preached even to those who are now dead, though the preaching was done to them while they were alive. Why? That though they are judged in the flesh as men, in other words, they die just like everybody dies. They die. They might live. So here's. Here's the life they have with Christ after death. They might live in the spirit according to the will of God. Now, what's the point of that verse? I mean, what in the context did Peter write it for? Here's what I think is going on behind this verse. There's a maligning. Well, here's what's happened. The, the Christians have heard the call to suffer rather than do wrong. They have broken off their sinning because it's enough. Those who they used to run with are surprised and they're maligning them. And here is some of the words that are coming out of their mouths. They're saying, ha, you Christians say that your God is so great that he turns everything for good, that he's a redeemer. Well, look. We know two things. Number one, you're missing a lot of parties. And number two, you and we die and go to the worms. You die and go to the worms. I die and go to the worms. I go to the parties. You don't go to the parties. I win. You lose. That's the maligning. That's the maligning. Now, verse six says, no. The reason the gospel was preached to Christians who are now dead and have brought great grief to the church and have given unbelievers a chance to laugh at you. The reason the gospel was preached to them is so that they would live after they die. Your friends, if they repent and do not listen to your gospel, please, your friends are going to meet a judge after they die. You will meet a savior after you die and then you have 10 trillion years of parties and they go to hell it's a hard word and we should say it with tears there is a judge who will meet you and all your friends and you can get ready by trusting his son. Let me sum it up. The word to us this morning is arm yourself with the will to suffer with Jesus. If that should be God's will in your life. Put on the armor that Christ suffered. Put on the armor that it'll make a clean break with sinning. Put on the armor that past sinning is sufficient. Put on the armor that the adversaries who resist you to the end will be called to account. And put on the armor that you, when you die, will live again forever and ever. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So as you leave this place now, as you do things this afternoon, as you enter your workplace tomorrow morning... Resolve to follow Jesus into whatever conversation he leads, into whatever breaking off of sin needs to happen this week, 
and be willing, fix it right now in your mind, I will pay whatever the cost to go with Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would inspire and strengthen your people right now. Lord, arm us so that we don't drop it as soon as we leave this room. Forbid that Satan would pluck the word off the path. Grant that the word would go down deep and that we would have a firm resolve to remember these things and so be strengthened. I pray for those who heard the word as a call to break off sinning in their lives, that they would follow through on that this week and perhaps report back to me or to some others that you did it in their lives this week. You liberated them and gave them the courage to accept the maligning of those they had to break it off with. Grant, Lord, strength and power to that end. And if there are any who are stuck right now and fearful, may they come to the front when we're done and go to the teams on either side and just say, pray with me that I would have the courage to be bold for righteousness this week. Lord, do it, I pray now. And all the people said, Amen.